Welcome to Unga Decoded. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevEx. For the next couple weeks, my colleagues and I are going to bring you inside the biggest global development gathering of the year. Skip the travel, the traffic, and the security lines, and join us for candid conversations with people at the leading edge of global development, global health, and humanitarian assistance. This is Unga Decoded. Being part of the solution means speaking up and be assertive with our rights. And that right is our right to a safe environment, our right to life, our right to development, and all of those human rights. Marinel Sumuk Ubaldo was 16 when Typhoon Haiyan, known as Yolanda in the Philippines, destroyed her family's home, their village, and ultimately killed more than 6,000 people in her country. That experience of witnessing firsthand the devastation of a storm charged by climate change and a sense of obligation to those more than 6,000 people who could no longer speak for themselves set Marinelle on a path of climate advocacy. My colleague Kate Warren spoke to Marinelle about how she carries that heavy weight of experience to the privileged spaces of international summits and policy negotiations, like the UN General Assembly's high-level week, where the voices of those most affected by climate change are still not always listened to and heard. Marinel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, too, for having me. <laughs> so is this your first CGI Unga week? Yes, this <laughs> is my first um, CGI participation, but this is my second week um, during the Climate Week for Climate Week, yeah. And what are you what are you doing here? What are you what the conversations are having? What are you hoping to accomplish? I'm really hoping that uh, all the commitments that we will have here at CGI will be translated more into action in the in the um, grassroots communities. I feel like this space should have been more inclusive. That there are more voices for, coming from the developing countries and marginalized communities and I am seeing just a few representation unfortunately and I'm very glad that I am here but also there are a lot of stories out there and a lot of people out there who could have been part of the discussion in this kind of spaces but um, I feel like this is not more inclusive I feel like um, a lot of um, people here are actually CEOs of big companies, which they can actually, which makes sense because they can actually pay the registration fee. But how about if I am just, you know, an ordinary citizen? I am not uh, invited to be a speaker, but I have a heart and a passion for climate justice, and I really want to make a change. And I'm already doing something in my community, but I don't have the money to be part of this kind of spaces. How can I be part of the dialogue if I don't have the economic opportunity? So I'm really, I'm really looking forward at how they will make these spaces more inclusive to people and more inclusive to the youth and not just to a few. And so you were actually on stage here mm-hmm. <laughs> with uh, Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. yesterday um, and talking about your personal experience. And I believe you mentioned how most of the impact of climate is felt by countries like yours in, mm-hmm. in the Philippines, even though you're a very, very minor contributor. I know you had a stat maybe you can throw out and <laughs> remind me of the percentage. Um, but you've actually had 
personal impact from this, right? And I think it was Typhoon Yolanda in, mm -hmm. in 2013 in the Philippines mm -hmm. um, really impacted your community. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how that has led you to be here and to be advocating for youth, for climate, and for countries like yours? Yeah, um, I started in 2012. I was trained to be a child facilitator. At that time, I was thinking that, you know, climate change advocacy is not really like something that we're talking about in community. So I felt that it was so interesting for me because then we could be prepared for what's coming in the in 50 years, in 100 years. We are referring to that as if it will be coming um, in, in 50 years. So we were already educating the communities, going to remote schools um, to talk about the basics of climate change and what we can do to adapt and mitigate its effects. And then Super Typhoon Haiyan happened in 2013. At that point, I know that there is something wrong. This is the strongest typhoon ever recorded. My father was then um, a 59-year-old um, man. He said that it was the first time that he ever experienced that kind of monstrous typhoon. It killed um, more than 10,000 people in our province. It destroyed um, thousands of houses, including my own, and it affected 14 million people across 44 um, provinces in our in our area and it's just i have seen like dead bodies i have seen it was my near-death experience and i guess being here representing the voices of those who cannot be here and who are who are not here anymore because they have because they were not fortunate to live i guess it is already my moral responsibility to share those stories and I am glad I'm given the platform, but also, as I always say, there's more stories out there. So how, seeing how my community responded, seeing how my community struggled, it kind of driven me to do more because I don't want to experience another super typhoon. And I felt that we could have done better more in responses and in preparation. So we lobbied with our government. We we sent petitions even to our um, to the Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines to make sure that those who are responsible for this type of crisis will be um, will be accountable, will be held accountable because it is really important that we are not just you know because we're not just victims. We we can also be part of the solution. But being part of the solution means speaking up and be assertive with our rights. And that right is our right to a safe environment, our right to life, our right to development and all of those human rights. The world is facing an unprecedented global food crisis. Here at DevEx, we're following the state of food insecurity around the world and the solutions that are needed to overcome it. I'm Teresa Welsh, senior reporter, and I'm also the author of DevEx Dish, a free weekly newsletter bringing you a comprehensive look at everything that matters in the world of food. Each Wednesday, DevEx Dish will be your guide through the interlocking policy, infrastructure, climate, agriculture, nutrition, and human rights issues remaking the way food is grown and distributed. Visit devex.com newsletters to subscribe and get your weekly update on the race for a sustainable global food system. For a lot of the international organizations that are here, you know, international NGOs, people working with UN or even USAID and funding agencies, a lot of them are operating or working in, in the Philippines. What would you say to them on how they 
can work with communities like yours better, um, how you can become a better part of the solutions. Uh, what advice would you give to them? I guess for international non-governmental organization or any international go um, organization working in developing countries, I would say that um, when you respond to disasters, um, I guess it is better not to bring in expats. I would really say that we need more economic opportunities for the locals. And during disasters, there are a lot of um, abuses happening, and that is between expats and the people there. And we don't want to intimidate more the locals. And when we go to the communities, we don't just tell them that this is our program and this is the things that we will be doing in your communities without even getting the opinions, without even getting, without even doing consultation with the community. I would appreciate that if before they go to the community, they would have a preliminary um, uh, meeting with the um, key leaders in the community. That is kind of courtesy to the communities that, hey, we are not here as like your heroes. We are here to facilitate change, but we'll be your um, lead and we are just here to help you. Because um, a lot of our um, organizations, though I really appreciate all the, I mean, the goals and the vision of the organizations going to the communities, but with the steps that they are taking in reaching that vision, we are losing sight of what's really important in the community, what are the, the things needed in the communities by themselves. And in that process, we forget that the communities should be there sitting during, um, during the planning, during the implementation, and even post-implementation of projects. Yeah, so a lot of people in our community have been talking about decolonization of aid, mm -hmm. um, localization is a term often used, just meaning shifting more decision-making resources directly to local communities. Um, so how do you think about those conversations and the work that you're doing, the work that you're doing within your community and why that is so important? I mean, like just making sure that um, the, local the local people um, are part of the discussion is already a big thing because as myself, I have been a beneficiary of so many aids already from disaster aids and everything. And um, and I felt that I am not. I felt that I am just part of the conversation if they're getting testimonial from the locals. And I guess for us to make sure that we are creating an impact, the um, the local people should have the sense of ownership to the project that you are implementing in the communities. And that when you go out of the community, you are actually assured that the projects that you started will stay in the community and it will be community-led. And I guess just being part of the baselining is very, very crucial, right? But our participation in, in, the, um, in the project implementation does not end in the baselining. It should, be, it should end after like, everything, the post-project um, implementation. So it, it would, I always appreciate when my fellow men are included in decision-making processes, especially on issues that affect them. So you don't want to just be a photo with a quote in a brochure yes. <laughs> and be sent to donors. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, well, so you know, we're leading up to COP27. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of talk about it actually being held in the global south and 
African continent this year, um, that the importance of including low and middle income countries um, in the conversation, in the solutions, should be front and center. There's some debate about <laughs> whether or not that will come to fruition. But as we look ahead to COP27, what do you hope to see come out of that and what conversations would you want to be part of? I'm really keen to seeing how they will institutionalize funding for loss and damage. They could have done that even before. And they promised in COP26 that they will talk about it in COP27. More than ever, we need funding for loss and damage. We already, some of the countries, some of the places already reached the hard limit adaptation. We cannot adapt anymore. We're just losing lives. We're just losing livelihoods. We're just losing our communities. We cannot adapt anymore if we can even have food in our table. And we need reparation to the countries that are bearing the brunt of a disaster we didn't even cause, of, a, of, of climate change we didn't even cause. And I just feel so, I just, I, I feel really sad to the communities and even to my own community is now sinking because of an action of our leaders. And I know climate solution does not come with, you know, conferences. It is after the conference, what we do after the conference. And I am hoping that we will have more outcome that is really community friendly and that all the things that we will be that they will be talking in COP27 will be translated to community efforts. Because I mean, we cannot just meet every year and then the communities don't even know what are the things that we are talking about in this kind of conferences and if it's even for them or if they have even access to the opportunities there. Well, what gives you hope? I guess what gives me hope is uh, my fellow youth. I mean, they have been doing so many amazing things and what gives me hope is the thought that there are spaces like this one that are given to the marginalized um, groups to be to put our stories out there that people still believe in the kindness of humanity people still believe that we can still do something collectively and i just hope that i also said this during the panel yesterday that i hope spaces like this um are events are things that i needed when i was younger that would give me hope, that would give me optimism, positive vibe, that we will ha be having a better world in the future. Well, thank you so much, Marinelle, and uh, we hope for that too. Thanks for listening to Unga Decoded. We'll be bringing you more interviews from the UN General Assembly throughout the next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it with friends, family, and colleagues. And you can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you've been to UNGA and have some thoughts, or if you just want to share some feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at DevX and at AlterIgo.